This is Radio Sustain, a journal of fair trade, resilient rural communities, safe food, and a healthy environment. Brought to you by IATP, the Institute for Agriculture and Trade Policy. This edition of Radio Sustain is for Thursday, April 1st, 2010. I'm Andrew Ranallo at IATP in Minneapolis. In today's Radio Sustain, agriculture is everywhere. Sustainable food and agriculture in China, free trade and food security in West Africa, and flooding in the Iowa River Valley. But first, what are the USDA and Department of Justice workshops on concentration in agriculture really all about? The USDA and Department of Justice are currently hosting the first ever series of workshops on competition in agriculture and the effects of increased concentration on rural communities, farmers, and the food system. The workshops will be held throughout the year at different locations around the country. IATP's Alexandra Spieldock attended the first workshop in Iowa and explains their importance both domestically and internationally. So what are the USDA and the Department of Justice doing at these workshops? Well, they're really looking at the whole issue of competition in agriculture and to what degree increased concentration and corporate concentration in the United States in agriculture is having an, a negative impact on markets, uh, rural communities, farmers, and, and the food system in general in terms of healthy, sustainable food and farming. You attended the first workshop, which was in Ankeny, Iowa, near Des Moines. Uh, what did you take away from being there? Well, first of all, I want to say that I was I was pleasantly surprised with uh, with the first workshop, recognizing that still much more needs to be done. There were some real positive aspects about what happened. First of all, there was a high level of leadership, um, first with Attorney General Eric Holder and also from the Department of Justice, and also Tom Vilsack from the U.S. Department of Agriculture. As well, there were a series of panelists of attorneys general from different states throughout the Midwest, and there were officials present throughout throughout the day at the event. So there was clear commitment by the U.S. government to attend and participate at uh, all levels of the dialogue throughout the day, and that was encouraging. Also encouraging was the fact that there was a large number of media in the room, uh, and so really feeling like this is an important issue to the general public and that the media is taking very seriously. And lastly, there were uh, all total about 800 people in the room with an open registration and minimal security. So in this sense, um, it really felt like the U.S. government was reaching out, and, and hopefully this will be the format for, at least some of it will be the format for upcoming workshops. The ultimate goal is that we'll have stronger antitrust enforcement in the United States, that we will seek to put more regulations on agribusinesses that are monopolizing markets, and monopolizing information as well as research that's being generated so that we can support more sustainable farming practices overall. So do you see the domestic debate in the United States linking with the international debate over agriculture at all? Well, it's interesting. There, there has been a, a divide, unfortunately, and, and not a, an ideological divide per se, but just a kind of a natural one where people focus their energies. 
I think there's a strong burgeoning local foods movement in the United States that is extremely exciting and I think is driving a lot of the critique of corporate concentration. And there's little understanding still about the particular impact of U.S. policies and U.S. corporations and their practices abroad. So I think much more um, linking needs to be done. In the context of this first workshop, there were numerous references to the fact that we live in a global market, that we need to expand our exports, that um, farmers need not be pitted against one another, and yet there was no substantive attention given to the international dimension of the debate. And this is very problematic. If you look at who controls the global market, the international food market, so to speak, it is largely U.S. and European agribusinesses. And many of those that are dominating the U.S. markets are also dominating markets abroad. And just to say, for example, that Cargill, based out of Minnesota, has operations in 68 countries and employs over 150,000 people around the world. And um, they're involved in meat production, grains and poultry, fuels, fertilizers, sweets, sweeteners and starches, grain trading markets, and other agricultural services. So it's not you know one small thing. In fact, they're able to dominate the markets because they have so many tentacles in so many and so many activities. And so this really deserves our attention. And just a note on that, I mean, there's the global context, which is quite important. And regionally, we should be talking a lot more about what happened with NAFTA and doing a lot uh, more linking about how immigration and security concerns, narco-trafficking are perhaps not directly caused by NAFTA itself, but are certainly linked in terms of the kind of job loss that we've seen and the devastation to rural communities in all three countries with um, Mexico, campesinos leaving the land, you know, two million people have left the land, many of them coming into the United States to work in our agricultural sector. Mexico itself is experiencing the wor- its worst food crisis in six decades, and Canada also is, is in, in great trouble with, uh, again, consolidation of just a couple of corporations, including Cargill now in its markets, um, controlling their agricultural sector, and their own uh, farm crisis, uh, the worst since the Great Depression, and their own genuine uh, problems that relate to concentration that need to reclaim the rural sector and support for small-scale diversified farming and, and healthy food production. So our particular debate is not just within our borders. It does have an, our policies impact farmers and consumers abroad. I really strongly believe that we should be creating more dialogue and more solidarity with experts and farm groups and consumers in other countries to challenge the negative impact that corporations are having on our food system. Listen, 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 listen. Don't need to hear what they say. Cause we're drowned out by the play. Don't need to know the meaning. Cause the meaning is lost when he starts screaming. In March, IATP co-hosted the first international workshop on sustainable food and agriculture at Beijing's Renmin University. 
IATP President Jim Harkness discusses what happened at these workshops and why the U.S. model of industrial agriculture is causing problems in China. What were the goals of the conference? Well, a very important goal was to try to present an alternative view of how a farming system can work to make sure that a country has food security. China has adopted green revolution technologies and really bought into the kind of industrial U.S. agricultural model. But in many ways, it's not appropriate for a country like China. Of course, we're discovering that it has a lot of problems here. So one important goal of the conference was to bring people from around the world who've had experience with different approaches to guaranteeing food security and share those perspectives with uh, Chinese experts and farmers and activists to try to get a conversation going uh, about what alternatives there might be to a farming system, an agricultural system that many people in China already recognize really isn't sustainable in the long run and is already causing tremendous problems for the environment and for farmers. So what, what happened there? What types of discussions were taking place? Because this is really the first conference of its kind in China that was really presenting an alternative view combined with a critique uh, of some of the, the, the difficulties of industrial agriculture, we really had a broad range of perspectives and, and kinds of conversation. We had everything from very high-level policy discussions to discussions about very concrete technologies. People were talking about biomass and biogas at the village level, talking about because of the links between you know energy and, and food, talking about things like the system of rice intensification. So specific sort of appropriate technologies for low-input sustainable agriculture. But there were also conversations about things like food safety and the sort of debate between people who feel that we really just need to uh, generate as many calories as we can by you know, using GMOs and, and raising productivity of, of this narrow set of food crops like rice and maize and wheat, and people who have this more holistic view that says productivity isn't the only issue and we really need to look also at the sustainability of the system, at making sure that the system distributes food in a more just way and guarantees food security in a, in, along those more broad parameters. So it was quite a wide-ranging discussion. What do you see as the next steps in furthering the discussion and uh, moving forward? There are a number of things that are underway. I mean, one of the first conclusions that we had because the conference was, we felt so successful in generating really high-quality presentations from both international and Chinese speakers is to really disseminate the results of the conference. Uh, we, we have audio and video uh, of all of the, the presentations and discussions. We have, in some cases, written transcripts in Chinese, and we have all of the PowerPoint and other presentations that people provided, as well as even some films that were part of the conference. And so we want to get those available to people on the IATP website, and also, you know, it's being shared with the other partner organizations uh, that were involved in the conference. We're also working with the Chinese co-organizers, with the Academy of Social Sciences of China and with People's University, to develop a statement uh, to Chinese leaders that can encapsulate some of the main messages that we felt came out of the conference, some of the things that I was talking about earlier, because China is in the process of developing uh, its 12th five-year plan 
and that will very much determine the direction that agricultural development takes in the country uh, over the next five-year period. And so that statement, we're in the process of drafting now. And then, you know, even during the conference, various people attending, uh, from government officials to scholars, uh, two people from the NGO community and even farmers were suggesting uh, follow-up conversations and initiatives that we want to work on. And those range from looking at different models of marketing and distribution uh, for organic and sustainable food to understanding the impact of climate change on grassland communities and how that will affect food security to uh, looking at this question of you know, can organic agriculture uh, feed China? Because that's a that's a real key concern. It's been uh, China in many ways was the the originator of many organic uh, agricultural techniques. Uh, China had very sophisticated uh, forms of agriculture right up through the 18th and 19th centuries and into the early 20th century. But most of that has broken down with the adoption of green revolution technologies. And so now what we're looking at with Chinese partners is how can we assess the prospects for a transition back to a more sustainable form of agriculture, you know, from a scientific perspective. For more first-hand accounts of IATP's recent workshop in Beijing, head over to IATP's Think Forward blog and click on the China category. This is the definition of my life Lying in bed in the sunlight Choking on the vitamin tablet Doctor gave in the hope of saving me In the hope of saving me One of the hallmarks of global agribusiness has been an aggressive push for neoliberal trade policies at the World Trade Organization and within regional trade agreements. Dr. William Mosley, a geography professor from McAllister College in St. Paul, joined us to discuss his new research on how trade policies have affected food production and livelihoods in the Western African countries of Gambia, Cote d'Ivoire, and Mali. So Dr. Mosley, what uh, prompted this research into these three countries in Africa? Well, a couple of things. As you know, in 2008, food prices spiked, went up about 50%, and this spawned a number of food riots around the world in urban centers, in particular in the global south. And there's a concentration of these in West Africa. So we wanted to understand why West Africa was uh, harder hit. But also, we felt the public discussion on the issue was very much focused on a technological fix, and we wanted to see if that made sense or not. So what were your findings? What did you find out? I'll answer that in response to the three questions we posed. Why was West Africa particularly hard hit? Why were some countries more severely impacted than others? And then what's kind of the best way to resolve that issue? And in the West African context, the issue has to do with, uh, first of all, global markets being flooded by relatively inexpensive Asian rice following the Green Revolution in the 60s and 70s, so that inexpensive rice was available. But also, West Africa went through a 20-25 year period of structural adjustment where tariff barriers were removed. So we had the combination of cheap rice, um, which then with no tariff barriers, flooded the domestic markets. So dependency on imported rice rose to 40%. So that explains part of why this region was particularly hard hit. And what's quite interesting about Mali, one of the countries we looked at, and why it wasn't as severely impacted is that it had a more robust domestic rice sector. And this had a lot to do with the fact that it was landlocked. 
And a lot of the development literature talks about being landlocked as a problem, but it's in a way it's kind of a natural tariff barrier. So because it costs more to get the rice into the country, uh, imported rice is more expensive, and it allowed that domestic rice sector to, to survive. And also, quite interestingly, um, and this was a coincidence or a serendipity, Mali's cotton exports collapsed because global cotton prices had declined, and that was replaced with sorghum production. So as rice prices were going up, Mali had increasing sorghum production, and a lot of the urban residents switched from, from rice over to sorghum as a substitute. And then finally, there's been a, a big push uh, for Nerika rice, which is a, it's a cross between Asian and African varieties, um, as a kind of technological fix to this problem. And we, we found that approach uh, kind of a focus on increasing production to be somewhat flawed because it didn't take account of this history of policies which had undermined rice production previous to that. So moving forward, mm -hmm. uh, this region obviously has a lot of challenges how do you think what you found in this research should inform uh, the discussion about best practices? Mm -hmm. Great question. I, I think, first of all, we have to understand the history of policy changes, how that undermined domestic food production. I think we need to revisit the question of, of protection. Maybe some protection is merited in order to foster a domestic food sector. And this needs to be a food sector that is based on technologies that are accessible to the poorest of farmers, that are accessible to female as well as male farmers. I think the other issue um, related to this is that there has been an urban bias in a lot of food policy. And we tend to think of urban bias being associated with certain kind of state-level policies, when in fact this kind of 20, 25-year run of liberalization was another form of urban bias because it was about bringing in cheap food for an urban population, which really undermined the livelihoods of, of rural people. So when we think about food policy going forward, we need to think simultaneously about urban consumers as well as rural producers. Dr. Mosley's study is available with subscription in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences Journal. More information at pnas.org. Expansion of commodity crop production in the U.S. over the last 50 years has also dramatically changed the landscape, particularly in the Midwest. IATP senior fellow Dr. Dennis Keeney sits down with Ben Lilliston to talk about the 2008 Iowa River Valley flood, increased flooding in the Midwest, and modern agriculture methods that may be contributing to the problem. Dennis, in 2008, Iowa experienced a, a historic flood. What was the role of some of the landscape changes that have occurred in Iowa over the last hundred years, as well as agriculture practices in, in that flood? Yes, Ben, as you point out, this is historic. It was a, just an incredible downpour of rain in, in two watersheds, and there would have been a flood no matter what happened with our landscapes. But our landscapes now are designed to get water 
out of the way. They're designed with tile draining. They're designed with straightened streams. We have uh, row crops that really don't soak up the soil. They, it runs uh, very rapidly off of cornfields and soybean fields. And so what we are seeing is more of these flash events because we don't slow the water down anywhere as much. Uh, the, the, the hist there's historical floods like this uh, just since we've been recording these, but uh, they happen more often and they happen more in a more disastrous way. It seems like they're coming uh, almost every year somewhere in the Midwest. Can you talk a little bit more about how corn and soybean rotations respond when water hits and why they are not so good at absorbing water? Yeah, because there isn't a really a root mass there, there's very much less pore space. Uh, the soil immediately puddles and is not receptive to water flowing into the soil. Soybean and corn fields or any other kind of row crop fields, but those two are the worst, immediate, uh, rather rapidly run, uh, let the water run off. And <clears throat> the, the residual, of course, is pushed down through into the tile drains, and that also comes roaring out uh, into the streams, which are often not really streams anymore. They're straight and drainage channels that roar right on into the next set of rivers and streams that are designed to take all the water away. It's, it's such an artificial landscape. And uh, from probably Minneapolis clear down through uh, much of Missouri, we've uh, refashioned this landscape in a way that it was never intended to be. It works for growing corn and soybeans when it's good, but it's going to be tough when uh, weather is bad. If we were to redesign that agricultural landscape to be more resistant to heavy rains or water, what kind of changes would we make? We would have to redesign agriculture to some extent. In fact, to quite an extent, it would have to be a longer crop rotations with uh, perhaps three years of a permanent, more permanent crop, a meadow of some kind, mostly alfalfas and grasses. There would be a land where water runs off very fast, more sloping lands, which also lose soil at a very high rate. Probably should be kept in more permanent cover. Uh, this conservation reserve program, which was uh, popular, but uh, seems to be being phased out because of financial reasons. I guess it just doesn't... Uh, pay back the way corn and soybeans do <clears throat> would be a, is a good way too. Uh, water will infiltrate into a natural prairie at incredible rate. You just hardly find runoff and you get into any kind of landscapes, even our, our lands that we have with uh, grass in our, here in the cities. The water runs off pretty fast. Mm -hmm. Great. Thanks very much. Okay. Thanks a lot. If you're interested in reading more about the 2008 Iowa River Valley floods, Dr. Dennis Keeney has also contributed to a new book entitled A Watershed Year, Anatomy of the Iowa Floods of 2008, available from the University of Iowa Press. Radio Sustain is a project of IATP, the Institute for Agriculture and Trade Policy. Find us on the web at iatp.org. Radio Sustain is produced by Ben Lillison. Radio Sustain's engineer is Patrick Sy. The music on the program was Listen, Listen by Merry-Go-Round, Dry the Rain by the Beta Band, You Showed Me by the Turtles, and 1,000 Tears of a Tarantula by Dengue Fever. I'm Andrew Rinaldo. Thanks for listening. Ooh,